I thank you again, Alan, and to our team for leading us this morning. There's a, a lot of joy to be found in sitting somewhere in these first couple of rows. <laughs> because you hear the singing coming from behind. And in those moments, it's magnificent. You know, we gather to glorify God. And just to hear the collective voice of God's people singing like uh, we are able to do is absolutely fantastic. I'm reminded as we were singing that song of Psalm 23, a psalm that's so familiar to us where uh, we are reminded, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. We have a God who journeys with us and uh, is with us no matter what our circumstances we celebrate that today. We're going to pray and uh, then launch our way into a new series this morning from 1 Peter. So let's pray. Father, today we do pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts to what you are saying to your church, to God's elect, to God's strangers in this world, scattered as we are here around Wodonga and Barranduda and Albury and all the places around us. We thank you, Father, that your word is living and uh, you are a living God who speaks. And so we invite you by your word to challenge us and to change us, to grow us in Christ-likeness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible open there to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at just the first few verses this morning. My brief was actually more than what we're going to have time to do today but uh, we're going to read through verses uh, 1 through to 5 and uh, you'll find that towards the back end of the New Testament if you're not familiar with uh, with the way the Bible Bible is laid out just after the book of James 1 Peter chapter 1 it's addressed by Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me encourage you to continue reading this passage through this week as uh, we don't have time this morning to unpack everything but it's a great encouragement to a church living in challenging times. On uh, Friday, Matt and I had the opportunity to spend some time with many of the pastors from the Baptist Union of Victoria and uh, I was able to tell a story that recalls something that happened very early in my time as a minister, a very new minister in a church. I opened up an envelope one day addressed to the pastor or the senior minister or something, it didn't have my name on it, Uh, But it was an invitation from the City Council to a civic reception for the Governor-General who was in town, uh, Michael Jeffrey. Now, if you don't remember Michael Jeffrey, it's probably because he did a good job. (laughs) It's the Governors-General that don't do such a good job, we remember. 
And I thought to myself, this is fantastic, you know, I'm brand new in this job and here I am being invited to a civic reception. I can count on one hand the number of times I had been invited to a civic reception. In fact, I didn't even need one hand to count the number of times that I'd been to a civic reception. This was the first time. And so it was a bit of an unknown. And so, rather thankfully, uh, and very graciously, one of my congregation members had passed away just a couple of weeks beforehand, which <laughs> had necessitated my purchase of a suit. <laughs> and so, I thought, well, at least I know what I'm going to wear. I was having this discussion with Matt yesterday too, actually, you know, it's like, one of the great injustices of life, so Diana tells me, that ladies, you have to buy an evening dress and you wear it once, maybe twice... And, uh, and then next time you've got to find another one. My old suit, I reckon it's done at least a hundred outings. <laughs> Every funeral that I've done, that suit's been faithful. Every wedding, it, gets, uh, it comes out there. It's been to the dry cleaners a few times. Uh, and it still fits. <laughs> That's not bad. So, I got myself sorted out in the suit this particular day and turned up at the door and I uh, presented myself at the door and was, uh, was, uh, was able to gain admittance to this uh, civic reception. And it remains in my memory as one of the most memorable but difficult moments in ministry. Memorable because uh, it, was, it was just a, a world I'd never been in. You now you're in this gathering of the important people in town. And, and the waiters, waiting staff were travelling around with drinks and, you know, they were very deferential. You know, sir, would you like something to eat? Note to self, make sure you've had lunch before you go to a civic reception because if you're expecting to get well fed, it's, it's all about the looks, not the quantity. <laughs> Doesn't work for me. Um, <laughs> memorable because, you know, there's opportunity to meet the Governor-General and look, to be frankly honest with you, Michael Jeffrey seemed to be a pretty decent sort of a bloke. He chatted to everyone, myself included. But it was difficult because in that moment I walked into a room, I had no idea who anyone was. No idea at all. Didn't know any of the people. As far as I remember, there may have been one other member of the clergy there, uh, but the rest were total unknowns to me. And it was very clear that they all knew each other. And to be frankly honest with you, I don't find making small talk in that kind of context overly easy with people I don't know. And I got the impression that nobody really knew me either and nobody much cared whether I was there or not. However, um, in that moment I made a decision and it was a brilliant decision. It was one of my finest moments. <laughs> Because I thought to myself, this could be the longest afternoon of my life. I didn't want it to be. So I said, if, you know, if I'm in this room of total, total people, no idea who I am. I'm brand new in town, just putting, put on the mantle of the Baptist church minister. I'm just going to go and introduce myself to people. What have I got to lose? 
And so for the rest of that afternoon, I'd see two people in conversation or three people in conversation. They were, you know, deep with their drinks in their hands and I'd just walk straight in and say, hi, I don't know you, my name's David Hodgins, I'm the Baptist minister. And of course, because the Governor-General was there, they couldn't be rude. (laughs) (laughs) They just had to say, oh, okay, yeah, come on into our conversation. One of the conversations was really quite memorable. It turned out to be, and I didn't know this, it turned out to be two guys standing. One of them was a really big chap, bellicose kind of a character. That's a great word, isn't it? Bellicose. His whole demeanour was this, and he was talking to another guy, and I bowled in. I said, Hi, I'm David, I'm Baptist Minister. The second guy disappeared really quickly. <laughs> I, I like to think it was because he was bored in the conversation that he was having, and it wasn't because I'd turned up. And, uh, and I found out this guy was the CEO of the city, the, the head honcho of the council. And uh, so we talked for some time and, and I got the impression that he was, he was prepared to kind of entertain me, if you like, but I wasn't the person he really wanted to network with. Because he was part of a network in the town that were called the Wednesday Club. Mm. And uh, I didn't know at that stage... But there was a group of people, the CEO, the councillors, the head of the hospital, the water authority, the owner of the abattoir, you know, they met every second or third Wednesday at the Wednesday Club for drinkies and networking and doing whatever they do. So they, they all had this stuff happening that I had no idea about. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because in that moment, in that time, on that day, I found myself asking a really important question. And that question was, where do I fit in this business? You know, where do I fit as a minister of religion in this gathering of the powerful in this city? But more particularly, and this is, it was an even more strategic and important question that has to be asked and was asked and needs to continue to be asked. Where does the church fit in that kind of context? What is the place of the church in this gathering. You see, once upon a time, the church was very much at the centre of the community. Social activities, the authority to speak on issues, the, uh, the local uh, media would defer to the church. What's, uh, what does the church say on this topic? What does the church say on that? What does the minister say? Da, da, da. That kind of stuff. That's changed. And so the question that I had to ask, that we have to ask, is where does the church sit and fit in relation to the community that we're part of, the changing uh, social environment that we are in? And I found myself asking that question uh, very sharply in that moment and have continued to ask that question because it's a question that sits out there for us. How should Christians engage with the changing society that we live in because the place the church once had is no longer available to us. It has gone. And as we think about that, Christians throughout uh, the centuries have had to address that question. Thanks, Matt. Um, And have answered that question in different ways. It's a question that always has to be asked. And throughout history, Christians have answered in different ways. Up this end of the spectrum, there are some, uh, South, South America, Latin America, for instance, the church, some of the branches of the church there have said, we need to go so far as taking violent action to achieve justice 
and rights for people, liberation theology, that kind of stuff. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there have been people like the Mennonites or the Amish who have resisted the interference of society, have defended their interpretation of the gospel uh, by removing themselves from uh, engagement with society. And then, of course, between those kinds of extremes, there's all sorts of other ways that people have answered this question. In America, for example, uh, the years ago, the moral majority or the Christian conservatives, that sort of groups have uh, have called people to return into Judeo-Christian values in the face of what they see as creeping secularism and liberalism and pluralism. That's how that group has responded. But if we went and talked to Christians in China, they might say, well, our engagement with society has to look quite differently uh, or quite different to that. Or if we went to talk to Christians in Afghanistan, they would say, we need to do it this way, we talk to Christians in Indonesia and a Muslim-majority country, they would say, well, we have to engage with our society in another way altogether. But the question has to be always asked, doesn't it? How does the church, how do Christians engage with their society? And it's an important question and sadly a question I think we don't often ask or perhaps we should say we don't ask often enough because the truth is all too often our society shapes us rather than us shaping our society. I remember, I wasn't sure whether I should tell this story or not, but I will. <laughs> I remember one of a, a young adult I was dealing with at one stage, uh, actually it was, it was grandma I was talking to. Grandma had some significant responsibilities for this person and uh, grandma was kind of scratching her head because this young person was living with her boyfriend and proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus. And, uh, and the challenge there was, this young person was saying, well, yeah, Grandma, that's how it used to be in your day, but God knows that things have changed in my day. And Grandma's kind of thinking, well, is that, that's not how I understand the Gospel. You see how society and the thinking of society was shaping the thinking of that young person and the manner in which she then lived out her faith rather than her faith shaping her engagement with society. So the question that we have to ask constantly is, you know, what is our relationship with the community that we're part of? Here we are today in a relatively stable Western democracy. We still have to ask that question. We have to figure out what does it mean to live before God with clear consciences, to live with integrity in our community, to strive to please God in whatever we do and to witness effectively in our gospel. And I think it's important that we think about this constantly and engage with the community that we're part of if we want to actually have an influence of it, on it and be part of what's going on. But remember, we're coming to it as Christians and our questions and our attitude, our posture is shaped by the gospel first. Well, this morning... Uh, we are starting a new series from 1 Peter and that's a long introduction uh, but necessary because in a very real sense the letter that Peter wrote to this church that is scattered, as he says there, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout what is now northern Turkey. Uh, Peter wrote this book with a very clear intention to help Christians figure out how to relate to the society that they were part of and it was a critical kind of a question because 
the society that they were living in was quite antagonistic towards Christianity. It was a tough place for them to be in. It was a place where there was a lot of pressure on them to capitulate in their faith. And so Peter addressed this question, how are Christians to relate to the society that they're part of? And there are some key differences that we need to keep in mind. We do not, by and large, experience persecution in our country. We might experience uncomfortable stuff from time to time. We might experience things that are unpleasant. But uh, the people that Peter was writing to were struggling, in some cases suffering, and were on the cusp, as history would tell us, of even greater persecution. And so Peter was writing to a group encouraging them to stand firm, helping them to know where they stood in Christ so that they could actually be uh, faithful and effective as witnesses to Jesus. Now, if you were Peter, where would you start in this process? What would be the first thing you'd want to say to people? Because starting points are really important, aren't they? I remember one uh, one of the great joys that I've had and this might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but one of the things I've really enjoyed is teaching my children to drive. <laughs> three out of three, first time on manual licences, that's pretty good. And probably for the first 20 or 30 hours, most of the one-on-one stuff was my purview. Diana would say, I'm happy to help, but only when they're competent enough to you know, be okay. So here's the question, if you're going to teach someone to drive, what is the first thing that you get them to do. The very first driving lesson. What is the first thing? I like, I like what Robert's just told me. He said, find a big space. <laughs> and when you found a big space, what do you do then? Well, some people would say, you know, you find the gears, you get them going, you teach them how to steer. There's things that happen before that. You've got to go back, right back to the very foundation. The very first thing that we would do was I would drive out to a big paddock or a a remote industrial area or somewhere where there was no likelihood of any harm coming to people or the car. And we would sit in the car and I'd say, Rightio, before we go, let's get the seat in its right position. Get comfortable where the seat is. Get the steering wheel positioned if there's any adjustment in the steering wheel so that it's comfortable. Set your mirrors up because you can't do those things on the fly, can you? It's no good driving along and saying to a learner driver, okay, now uh, adjust your mirrors while we're going along at 40 kilometres an hour. That's just not... That's a recipe for disaster. You've got to start with the foundations. You've got to start with the things that are really important first. And that's pretty much what Peter does in this letter. He starts here in chapter 1 with the things that are really, really important. How do you engage with a society that was openly antagonistic towards Christian Christian faith? Let me summarise this in a fairly simplistic way but a fairly important way because what Peter says is this, you need to be totally grounded in who you are before God before you can begin to engage with your society. The first question is not how do I engage with my society, it is who am I in Christ? What is salvation? What is, God, what is God saying about me? Who is God? Peter commences this important task of helping Christians 
relate to their society as Christians and by implication we, uh, we learn from this. And through this passage and a little beyond this passage into up to verse 12, he, uh, he starts by grounding these Christians in their faith so that they can be strong in the face of potential suffering or difficult circumstances or whatever. And that's, uh, it's almost um, you know, too obvious to say it, isn't it? If you're going to view the world through the lens of faith, you've got to be grounded in your faith. And yet it's really bizarre that in our society, because it's been so easy for us, there's so many Christians who skim along the top of the surface of faith and biblical knowledge and the grounding of salvation because we haven't had to drive deep into these things. We've not been pushed to do that. One of the challenge or the challenges of discipleship in our age is this shallowness, I think, where we are satisfied with kind of just doing enough to get by, if you like, just covering a few of the bases. That's not going to cut it, Peter would say, in the face of difficult times. Because like those pond skimmers, you know those insects that kind of trip along the top of the water, they rely on the surface tension, they go okay until there's a ripple and then the surface tension breaks and they're in trouble. And so will we be if we're not rooted deeply in the things of salvation and faith. So let's have a look at um, some of the things that Peter says here in this passage and we just do not have the time that we need to unpack it totally. The introduction is really significant uh, it's titled Peter, an Apostle of Jesus Christ. There are some people who think this book may not have been written by Peter. I'll put that right out there. Uh, they say Peter was an unschooled Galilean fisherman and yet the Greek of this passage is particularly fine Greek. Uh, there's arguments to say that maybe it was someone else who wrote it but there's actually some very good arguments to say it was Peter who wrote this, the manner in which he sews together uh, the stories, the Old Testament references, that sort of stuff would suggest that it's very much Peter. And Peter starts in a very humble way. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't parade himself as some kind of great guru or expert or anything like that. He just states it very simply. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And his is an amazing story, isn't it? Peter, a fisherman from the north of Galilee, probably a wealthy fisherman, let's be honest, he was part of a business, uh, but a fisherman who Jesus called, a fisherman who Jesus called and became a disciple of Christ, who became one of the leading disciples, almost, if you like, a leader amongst the disciples. Peter was actually, interestingly, the first one who declared Jesus the Messiah. You remember that passage from Mark? where Jesus said, who do, you say, who do the people say that I am? Easy, easy answers for that one. Um, some say Elijah, some say the prophet. And then Jesus asked a really sharp question, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. Great declaration of faith. Peter was the one who identified Jesus as the Messiah first of all of the disciples. In the very next breath... Uh, Jesus started talking about the suffering of the Messiah, the Messiah must die and Peter said, no way, come on, no, 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 you've got that wrong. Peter was the one who was very anxious about this idea that the Messiah would die. Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times. Peter was the one 
whose world was shattered when Jesus was put to death. Peter was the one, one of the ones at least, who were witness, was a witness to the resurrection. Peter was one of those who rose up and led the church through Acts. Peter was the one who preached. Peter was the one who had the vision that brought together this idea of the Jewish church and Gentiles coming together as one. Peter was the one who preached ultimately that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulcrum, it is the pivot point of Christian faith. What an interesting story. And so we have here Peter writing to a church to ground them in these things. There's, uh, to be honest with you, uh, there's a, a couple of mines, if you like, you know, the type that explode if you step on them here in these first few verses. There might be some wondering what we're going to do with words like elect, chosen, you know. There's, I remember the discussions back at Bible college, you know, first-year students, they love to debate predestination and election and, and the sovereignty of God and all this kind of stuff. These discussions are terrific in the in the airless world of theological study. <laughs> but what we could say as we reflect on those couple of statements is this, uh, pride wants to say, human pride constantly wants to say it's all about us, you know, we have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not making fun of that, uh, that, that hymn, but there's an attitude that sometimes pervades our thinking about faith, that it's about us. And what Peter wants to say here is, it's not about us. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what God has done. When it comes to being a Christian, it's actually what God has done. And there's some really significant challenging treasures hidden in this introduction here in verse 2 as well. You who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Great, we had a couple of songs there, thank you Alan, that invited us to think about the role and place of the Spirit, one of the really important and understated works of the Spirit. I say understated because when we think about the Holy Spirit, you know, we default to thinking about speaking in tongues or worship or whatever it might be, important that that may be. But one of the most important and understated roles of the Holy Spirit is embedded in here, it is a sanctifying work. The Spirit's work is to sanctify us, that means to purify us, to make us acceptable to God. For what purpose? Read the very next phrase, it says, for obedience to Christ Jesus. And so, if we can, uh, we can just say this, you know, if your idea of engaging with the Holy Spirit is to have a great time, you've missed the mark. Because one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit is actually to help us walk in obedience to Christ. And as we walk in obedience to Christ, what does the Scripture say? We will bear what? The fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience, joy, that sort of stuff. And so... Uh, Peter's again grounding these Christians and so by implication us uh, in this work that God is doing. You have been chosen by God according to his foreknowledge for this sanctifying, purifying work that the Spirit of God is doing for obedience to Christ and sprinkling by his blood. There's lots of words in here that sort of bring us back to mind to the Old Testament temple, isn't there? 
and that this uh, Peter's history, his his Jewish faith is springing up here, which is really kind of interesting because, of course, that Old Testament temple kind of concept has now moved to Christ and what uh, Jesus has done. From verse 3, Peter commences the body of his letter and he starts with what is a typical Jewish greeting. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to praise somebody, it's worth uh, having a good reason to praise them. And Peter gives this reason in verse 3. He goes on to say, In his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, you've got to remember uh, Peter's story as you read this. And it's no accident that Peter uses the word living hope, a living hope. You see, Peter's hope had been in Jesus. We go back into the Gospels, he identified Jesus as the Messiah, but the Messiah died on the cross. Can you imagine the double pain that Peter experienced in that moment? Not only was he carrying this burden of having denied Jesus when that cock crew, the weight of guilt upon his shoulders was immense, but the Messiah died. Hope was lost. Hope had died. It's not a pleasant place to be in, is it, when hope dies? Think about perhaps some of the circumstances you may have experienced yourself where you've been looking forward to something whatever it might be, there's a thousand illustrations we could use to bring this to life where in the face of hope, hope has died. And in those moments, our world crashes around us and it seems like we can hardly breathe, can't plan, we can't strategize. All we can do is just sit there with this weight, this burden upon us as hope dies. The death of hope is a terrible thing. But Peter says, praise be to God, we have a living hope. A living hope. And that living hope, of course, was grounded in the events of Resurrection Sunday when not only did Peter hear that Jesus had been raised from death, that Jesus then appeared to him personally. And so Peter was able to say, hope that was dead is now alive. And at that point, sorry, the point that Peter wants to make is this as he writes to the church. The resurrection of Jesus spells hope for us, not just because Jesus lives, which is true, he does, but because Jesus lives, we live. And so we have a living hope. It's not just that Jesus is alive, but we live in him. You remember that old song, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. I'm not going to sing it for you, but you know it. A living hope, Peter says. And uh, Peter goes on to say uh, to those he was writing to, and by implication again us as well, God's elect have a hope as secure and as real as the resurrection of Christ. And that's why I say to you, uh, without the resurrection, we are lost. This hope that we have, this hope that we hold on to in the face of the death of hope around us, this hope that we hold on to, let's talk about context, this hope that we hold on to in the context of a changing world is a living hope. 
and it's a hope that's grounded in the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Christ. It's not a hope that is based on our own efforts. It's not a hope that sits out there somewhere in Never Never Land. It's grounded in history. It's grounded in a reality. It's something that we are able to live. It's a living hope. It's anchored for us in the past, for Jesus rose from the dead. It remains for us in the present because Jesus is alive and it will be completed in the future because Jesus is coming back. If you jump to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the author says, we have a hope which is the anchor for our soul. That's a great image, a hope that is an anchor for our soul. It's a verse um, which resonates beautifully with what Peter is saying and, and look, to be, I've got to confess, I've used this verse, this hope that's an anchor for our soul, totally personally, indulgently, because um, <laughs> when I was a young person, I was part of Boys Brigade, a, a kind of an organisation that trained young men uh, in the ways of God and the, the emblem actually was an anchor and their motto was based on this verse and their theme hymn was that hymn. Who knows the hymn? Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the winds unfold their wings of strife? And there was a great uh, chorus that it's so hard to get boys to sing when they're 8 or 9 or 10 or 12 or 15 or 7 but every time we sang this hymn we would beef it out and I mean really beef it out. Uh, we've got the words here, um, the chorus. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep. I love that part, you know. <laughs> Where is it grounded? In the Saviour's love, an anchor that holds us firm and deep in the Saviour's love. This is a great encouragement to those who are struggling with the storms and turmoils and tumults of life. A great encouragement to the church that Peter was writing to. Our hope is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in our capacity to create safe environments, not in our insurance, not in our superannuation, not in our property portfolios or our share portfolios. It's not in our family. It's not in our friends. It's grounded in Christ. It's anchored to the rock, uh, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And Peter goes on to say here in verse 4, and it's in an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. There was a family that we knew years ago who lived out the back of uh, a wonderfully named place, Manangatang, and uh, we used to go and visit. Some of the boys were part of our youth group and so we'd often go out there and mess around out in the Mallee. Uh, it was a, they were a wonderful Christian family. I think I might have told some of these stories to some of you, but uh, they are... Uh, they are legion, these stories. They were farming out there. They were farming between the Mallee scrub, um, growing wheat and barley, that sort of stuff. This is the days before canola. They loved their Holden Kingswoods, the HG kind of model, you know, the 1970s sort of era. And they had a whole heap of them. And they wouldn't all be working at the same time. They, <laughs> they had one set of number plates. <laughs> 
And they did. Let's move them to whichever particular car happened to be working at the time. One of the cars, <laughs> i never forget this occasion, one of the cars uh, suffered a very ignominious fate. Uh, they were having trouble starting the header. And so what do you do? You jump start the header from one of the cars. And so they did that. Only thing is the header happened to be in gear. And <laughs> up and over the bonnet of the car. So number plate came off that car <laughs> and onto another car. They had a house. <laughs> it was typical, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, you know, the Mallee kind of soldier settlement house. Very simple kind of a house. Uh, and the house grew as they added to their family. And so a room would be built onto a room to be built onto a room. So if you wanted to get to the end bedroom, you kind of went through the lounge, kitchen, through a bedroom, through a bedroom, through the bedroom. Uh, it wasn't that easy because they had an apricot tree growing right at the entrance door and it was, let me tell you, it was a good apricot tree. So much so they could not bear to prune the apricot tree too hard. So you literally climbed through the apricot tree <laughs> to get in the front door. Uh, I could tell you stories all day, but here's the story I want to tell you. Um, we were standing out the back of the house uh, looking at Matthew's bedroom. Matthew was easy to identify because the brothers and their sister would cut each other's hair. And... <laughs> Matthew turned up with a big M, kind of. <laughs> his bedroom was out the back <clears throat> and the only way to get to his bedroom was to walk around the back of the house and then step up a step of about 600 mils, I'm guessing it was to keep the snakes out, uh, into his bedroom, which basically had a bed and a wardrobe. The chook was nesting in the wardrobe and, uh, and he didn't mind that because that means he had eggs for breakfast. <laughs> But to this day, I can remember standing there with, uh, with the wife who, who could probably sense my disbelief at this array of wonderful catastrophe that their place was. And she said, uh, we are building up our treasures in heaven. And they were. Seriously. In terms of earthly stuff, they didn't have a lot. But in terms of treasures in heaven, they were investing heavily. And there's a passage that Peter would have known about because Peter was with Jesus when Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. No wonder Peter says here in verse 4, uh, we have been given this living hope and inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, which is kept in heaven for you. No matter what happens, Peter says, this inheritance is safe. Nothing can take it away. And that's really interesting because, as I said before, a lot of stuff Peter says here has allusions to the Old Testament. If we go back to the Old Testament as the people, and we were looking at this, these stories just over the last couple of months, as the people made their way into the promised land, they were walking into an inheritance. 
that God had prepared for them. The inheritance of land, the inheritance of this blessing of the promised land. But that inheritance was, a, was an inheritance that was destroyed by invading armies. It was an inheritance that uh, was spoilt by idolatry. It was an inheritance that faded with the droughts of God's judgment. But Peter says the inheritance that you and I as faithful followers of Christ have is a different inheritance. It's an inheritance that will not perish, spoil or fade. Invading armies cannot touch it. Idolatry from outside will not impact it. It is not going to fade. It is held fast for you in heaven. And not only is that inheritance kept safe through God's power, as Peter says here, uh, we are shielded through faith by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, that could be very easily misunderstood. You know, this statement here which says, you who through faith are shielded by God's power, as though somehow faith that we have is the key. Well, faith, as I've said to you before, is uh, an expression of dependence on a higher authority, isn't it? When you exercise faith, you are putting yourself, uh, putting trust in something or someone beyond yourself. Did you check the chair that you're sitting on this morning before you sat on it? You exercised faith when you sat down. And it's faith in Christ who has done the work that means that this salvation is secure. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about what Jesus has done for us. And so, with very broad brush strokes, this is where Peter starts as he comes to address this important question of how to live in relationship with your community. You'll find as you go through the rest of this book, as we walk our way through it, there's lots of practical, ethical uh, behavioural advice. But that behaviour is always grounded in belief. It's always grounded in something solid. One of the stories that I told our young adults at the young adults camp a couple of weeks ago was this one. Uh, when I was a child, we had a pantry in the house and at around about waist height, probably lower now because my waist has moved, upwards, <laughs> there was a shelf with biscuit tins and cake tins. You see, Mum was actually quite, a, a, I say now, quite a prolific uh, baker, she would cook biscuits so that there were always some biscuits there or a chocolate cake so there was always a chocolate cake but there were rules. You couldn't just go and help yourself to the biscuits or the cake at any time. Sometimes I found those rules really annoying. <laughs> but you get home from school, you're allowed to have two biscuits and one piece of cake. Pretty good. <laughs> and they were pretty good. Or if the uh, freshly baked chocolate cake, mum would, would make chocolate cake and my brother and I would just kind of be hanging around like vultures waiting for it to come out of the oven because what's the best time to eat chocolate cake? When it's warm. And what's wrong with eating a whole chocolate cake when it's warm? <laughs> but there were rules about not doing that and those rules were grounded in, in beliefs. For example, the belief that it is greedy to eat more than you need to. The belief that it's actually nice to have some food on hand when guests come. 
So what appeared to my way of thinking to be these kind of rules designed just to make my life difficult actually were grounded in some solid beliefs. That is true of Christian ethics because I've yet to find a place in the Scriptures where Paul or Peter or Jesus or anyone actually says, do this because I say so. They are always grounded in a a theological reality and that is true in this passage as well. As Peter starts to speak to the church about how do you live in a community that is difficult to live in, we start with a theology, sorry, a theological reality. We start with salvation, we start with who we are in Christ because if you get that right, then the other stuff can grow naturally from it. If you don't get that right, you're in trouble because as that old hymn would say, when the storms of life come your way, as inevitably they will, then you're going to find the anchor drifts. And for us, as we think about what it means to be Christ-like in our context, as we think about what it means to be faithful witnesses in what will be an increasingly challenging context, as we think about what does it mean to please God and in, in an environment that is hostile to the gospel, we need to come back to this place. There's great merit, I believe, in studying cultural trends and asking what the driving questions are that people wrestle with. What is the contending philosophies of our age that shape our culture, secularism, humanism, all that stuff? Much value in understanding the times. But the work of apologetics, the work of engaging our society with the gospel, even the practical, simple task of figuring out how to live integrity in our world starts with the truth that Peter has laid out for us here where he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the richness of your word, for the word that has been preserved for us through the ages, for the word that speaks truth and life to us in a manner that is life-giving and contains life. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you understand better than we ever will the culture and context that we live in. You understand better than we ever will our personal circumstances that sometimes we find so difficult. And you are a merciful, loving God, the God who has chosen us, who knew us before we were born, the God who has reached out to us, given us new birth into a living hope, And this morning, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that resurrection, that victory over sin and death as the single most important determining event in the history of humanity, freeing us to be in relationship with you, holding us secure so that uh, we might not drift around in the storms of life, anticipating that day when you, Lord Jesus, will return and make all things new. We thank you for your word. Help us to grow in the things of God, we pray, that we might be well grounded no matter what our circumstances. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.